0: Well, thank you for worshiping with us. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, we're going to start with verse 30. And I might add, if you don't have a Bible, if you look on the the back of the seat in front of you, there there might be a Bible sitting there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, we ask you to consider taking that as a gift from us. We want everyone to be able to have a Bible. It's it's, uh, one of the main tools that God uses in our lives to help us be the people that we need to be. This uh, Acts 22.30 is the first verse in our passage today that quickly takes us into the first 11 verses of chapter 23 and when... We read this passage in a moment. I would ask that you keep three words in mind and think about the implications of these three words as the passage unfolds. The three words are conflict, conscience, and comfort. If we're all honest, these three words are often a part of our daily lives. This past week, have you had any conflict? Have you had to deal with your conscience with, regard, with regards to right and wrong, issues of right and wrong? Have you needed some comfort because there's some stress in your life? In this passage, we find the Apostle Paul living in all three of these categories. Here's what the passage says, starting in Acts chapter 22 and verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also of me in Rome. Now, through the past weeks, we have been learning about the Apostle Paul and his efforts to share his faith and introduce people to the resurrected Jesus Christ. In this passage, we find Paul under arrest from the Roman government and is speaking to the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of 71 members. This included the high priest, a vice chief justice, and 69 general members. Only chief priests, elders, and scribes were eligible to sit on this council. And in this meeting, there were religious leaders called Sadducees, and Pharisees, of which Paul had been a part of in his past. As we look at this story, I count at least five different conflicts that engulf the Apostle Paul. Let's look at them. Can you identify with Paul? uh, About some days having multiple conflicts and stress that comes with each of them? And have you ever noticed... That during times of conflict, there are more temptations and opportunities for bad decisions and problems to cascade into even more conflict. Well, what's the first conflict? It was with the Jews for preaching the gospel. One of Paul's greatest purposes in life, was to, be, to help people to see that Jesus Christ was sent from God and personal faith in Him was required to be right with God. He was compelled to look for opportunities to talk with people about their soul and God's remedy for their sin problem. This did not sit well with many Jews. And even today, there are those who do not believe that there was anything special about Jesus Christ regarding forgiveness and eternity. They believed this to their detriment. The second conflict was with the Roman government for creating conflict with the Jews. Now, it's never fun to be at odds with the government, is it? But Paul found himself in this position. This did not deter Paul because he believed that God is more important than any government system or person. And he rightly believed that to be obedient to God's will is important even if it puts you at odds with others. Paul's highest authority was not the government, but God. The third conflict that we see in this passage is with the high priest because of Paul's statement about conscience. Now, when Paul said, quote, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day, end of quote, Ananias, the high priest, thought he was committing blasphemy. So he ordered that Paul be struck in the mouth. Now, the word here means not just to kind of slap him, but to hit him hard. And this went against Jewish law which held a person innocent until proven guilty. The historian Josephus described Ananias as profane, greedy, and hot-tempered. Now that's not a very good reputation for a high priest, is it? Then Paul told Ananias that God would strike him due to his injustice. I would say at this point, Paul and Ananias were not getting along very well, wouldn't you? (laughs) Have you noticed there's great temptation to do things in anger when you feel that there's been an injustice? This is the time to calm down so that actions and attitudes do not make the conflict even worse. The fourth conflict was with the audience for the way he confronted the high priest. Paul's response to Ananias, the high priest, was, well, it was spunky, wasn't it? And surprising. Paul was saying he looked good on the outside, but on the inside he was full of decay and corruption. He was a whitewashed wall. The audience then accused Paul of reviling the high priest. Now immediately, Paul called in his mind, he recalled Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, where God taught His people to, quote, to not curse a ruler of your people. Once Paul recognized that Ananias was the high priest, he admitted that he had spoken wrongly to him. What we say and how we say it are both important, aren't they? Here we learn also something important about whom God allows to be an authority over us. While it is not wrong to disagree with an authority, we need to be careful not to insult them. It goes to how we tend to treat those in authority knowing that God has allowed that person to have that position. The fifth conflict is with the Sadducees regarding the resurrection. The final conflict of the story begins with Paul making a statement about how he believed in the resurrection and it brought him to be falsely accused of doing wrong. Paul used the topic of the resurrection very strategically it is the focal point of Christianity. And he wrote a long treatise about it in First Corinthians chapter 15. One of his main concepts was that if the resurrection was not real, then the Christian faith is empty and it's worthless. Paul made the main thing the main thing in his ministry. That is, Christianity is not valid unless there's a resurrected Savior. And Paul was simply talking about the one thing that if not believed will condemn a soul to an eternity away from God. Perhaps his conscience, Paul's conscience, would not allow him to neglect an opportunity to get people talking about the resurrection. Perhaps Jesus Because Jesus rose from the dead, He can grant us forgiveness and fulfill His promises to to provide eternal life to each of us who are believers. Why did this cause a conflict? Well, the Pharisees believed in a future resurrection where the Sadducees did not. It was a great point of contention between the two groups. And once Paul mentioned the resurrection, he immediately gained the approval of one group and the contentious ire of another part, causing a riot to break out. And fearing that Paul would be harmed, the Roman authorities took him away for his safety. One question before we leave this conflict. The Apostle Paul was defined by the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what defined his ministry. What defines your life? What defines your life? Now, there could be many good answers to that question, couldn't there? But may I offer one? Are you known as a disciple of Jesus Christ? What is a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's a believer who lovingly follows Christ and intentionally helps others follow Him. You will want that identity when you stand before God and give an account of your life. The second word used to describe this passage is conscience. First we talked about conflicts. Now the conscience. In this passage, Paul stated that he had quote a good conscience. Now let's take some time to learn a few things about something we all have. A conscience. First, God created each of us with a conscience. It's a function of our soul and our spirit. It's the non-physical part of us. Now there's a helpful verse in Proverbs twenty twenty-seven. It says, The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all His innermost parts. God stirs us through our conscience to see ourselves as He sees us. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit, according to John sixteen eight, is to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He does this in conjunction with our conscience. Second thing about our conscience. It's often described as the moral compass of a person and provides moral awareness. It has also been described as a voice that bears witness to whether our beliefs are right or wrong or have been violated and obeyed or obeyed. It also provides a grid whereby we can sense if we're making decisions in a way that violates our own moral codes. Third thought about the conscience. There are both inborn and developed aspects to our conscience. Think of that. Both inborn, in other words, when we're born, we have some things there that God put there. But there's also some things that we learn along the way. Romans 2.15 says, The law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Along with inborn spiritual indicators, it's well to remember that the conscience is continually under development because we continually process life. We take in new knowledge. We make decisions that affect it. Now this principle reminds me of a read when, uh, when I was reading about a shoplifter who wrote to a department store saying, I have become a Christian and I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. So here's $100 that I owe you. He signed his name and then added a little P.S. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> now I'd say that this man's conscience needed further development, wouldn't you? Yeah. This is why it's so important for children and adults to be under the continual instruction Of God's Word. Without it, we're left to our own desires as to what is right and wrong. And since we are all fallible, it makes sense to seek a higher authority who has all truth and our best interest in mind. His name is God. And He has revealed His way and His will, His ways and will, through the Bible. Fourth thing about the conscience. Since it's under constant development, it's not always accurate as to defining good moral behavior. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul did before he became a Christian? He persecuted Christians, didn't he? Yet he did this in ignorance. He thought he was, he was being a good servant of God by seeking to abolish and demolish Christianity. Yet in our passage today, he said he had a good conscience during that time. Once he met Christ, a new aspect was added to his conscience about the truth of Christianity. And what was morally right and wrong was then adjusted in his life. Fifth thought about your conscience. It can produce guilt when accepted moral standards are violated. Do you remember what Paul said of himself in First 1 Timothy 1.15? 1 he said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul was keenly aware of his sin and guilt before God. And it's always good to acknowledge our guilt. It tells us something needs to be adjusted in our lives. Next thought about your conscience. It can produce a sense of satisfaction when good moral standards and decisions are chosen. Knowing that you have selected the righteous behavior over the unrighteous behavior for the believer produces spiritual satisfaction and joy. And knowing you have listened and chosen the path that pleases God is worth its weight in gold. Last thought about the conscience. It can be damaged to the point that there's little sensitivity to right and wrong. And if we persist in ignoring our conscience promptings, it can become scarred, hardened, and insensitive. But obedience, confession, and forgiveness, uh, they're the key ingredients to a clear conscience. The Bible gives us some key concepts to describe the conscience. Let's see if any of them describe how you're currently feeling about your conscience. The first one is the weak conscience. This is a conscience that has been, well, it's just not developed as much as it should be, and therefore it's not strong. And often there's a spiritual immaturity connected to this condition. The conscience is always weak if it's not informed by the principles of God's Word. There's a wounded conscience. This conscience has felt the pains of disagreement or misunderstanding about an issue with a fellow Christian. There's a defiled conscience. This conscience is corrupted by an evil heart and makes choices to violate God's moral standards. There's one called an evil conscience. This conscience has elevated worldly and carnal standards above God's standards and is perpetually sin conscious. Someone said the trouble with the advice, follow your conscience, is that most people follow it like someone following a wheelbarrow. They direct it wherever they want it to go, and then they follow behind. There's something called the seared conscience in Scripture. This conscience has been scarred by repeatedly ignoring the guilt and sinful behavior. It's insensitive to sin and has decided to neglect helpful spiritual maintenance through confession and forgiveness. There's the good conscience. This conscience has been renewed by God's grace and accepted the standards of right and wrong from God's perspective. Paul used this term in the Scripture passage today to describe his conscience A good conscience is one of the best friends you will ever have. There's the purified conscience. This conscience recognizes the function of guilt is to confess and make things right with God and man. It has experienced the forgiveness of God and enjoys a righteous standing before Him. And then there's the clear conscience. This is, the conscience that, this is the term that we use whenever we often describe our conscience and a spiritually healthy one. Paul used this term to describe how he wants his conscience to be. But it doesn't mean that if you have a clear conscience that you're perfect or sinless. It simply means action is taken to do right and make things right that are wrong. He said in Acts 24.16, So I always take pains to have a clear, and that word means a blameless conscience toward both God and man. This means there's no offense that stands as a barrier to a good relationship with someone. Now, most likely, we've all experienced these conscience types. The last three, the good, the purified, the clear conscience, they all describe a conscience that has God's approval and truly helps us live a godly life. So, let's go back to the story now. If the Apostle Paul sought to live by a good or a clear conscience, can we see the links to that decision in this passage? Yes. I see at least four five of them in this narrative the first one it helped him to live according to god's word living by god's word creates the basis for our beliefs and our behaviors whatever god said about life through the scriptures was what he accepted as truth and there is no greater roadmap for life than god's word and keeping a clear conscience by obeying it. We are constantly tempted, you and I are both constantly tempted, to accept standards for life that are not congruent with God's Word. When we do, we become blind to truth and place ourselves in hostility to God's will and ways. And the result is confusion, guilt, and pain. Life is neither fulfilling nor rewarding because we are working in opposition to God. The second evidence, it helped him to courageously fulfill God's purposes for his life. God made each of us on purpose and doing what He wants us to do with life is vital to a clear conscience. Third evidence, It helped him apologize when he had violated one of God's standards. Now, none of us are perfect. Yet through forgiveness, we can live with a clear conscience. There's no better way to have a clear conscience than to accept the forgiveness of God that He offers us through Christ. The fourth evidence. It caused him to be more concerned about how God will judge him as opposed to men. Proverbs 29.25 reminds us that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. It's so easy to get caught up in seeking the approval of man above God. If this becomes a reality, then all kinds of bad decisions are made. And these decisions will always end in disappointment, bondage, disaster, and a defiled conscience. Fifth evidence. It helped him to not always interpret trials as evidence that he was doing something wrong. I want to say that again to let it sink in. It helped him to not always interpret trials as evidence He was doing something wrong. During conflict and trials, often the question arises, is God trying to punish me for something? If God brings some moral failure or disobedience to mind, then yes, He wants us to confess that and forsake it. But sometimes, you can do right and still have difficulty, trials, and suffering. Just ask Jesus. So we've seen conflict, conscience. Now the third thought, comfort. I can only guess how Paul felt as he assessed the events of the last 24 hours in his life. Verse 11 in our text says, the following night after all that riot, The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. What gave him comfort? I think he got comfort from the Lord's presence. Can you imagine how Paul felt as he experienced the previous day's conflicts with so many people and the stress that goes with that? He was falsely accused. His life was in jeopardy. And now he's had 24 hours to reflect about his life from the view of a prisoner. The passage doesn't tell us how he felt. But the Lord thought it good to comfort Paul with his presence. Paul experienced a unique presence of the Lord called a theophany that confirmed the Lord's concern. You and I will probably not experience the Lord next to us, right there with us physically as Paul did. But we should remember that the Lord is with us nonetheless. Consider the parting words of Jesus to His followers from Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20. Here's what Jesus said. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The second Reason I think he had comfort is because he was fulfilling the Lord's purpose in his life. There's no deeper consolation than to know that you are in the Lord's will for your life. It calms the seas of turmoil. It helps to helps to see the value of life's efforts. Having the Lord's approval gives comfort and creates courage during turmoil. Listen to a well-known verse that the Apostle Paul himself wrote in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. These are words of comfort So, if we could sum up this story in the book of Acts in one sentence, it might look something like this In the turmoil of life, a clear conscience creates the basis for spiritual courage and comfort. In the turmoil of life, and we all have it, don't we? A clear conscience creates the basis for spiritual courage. And comfort. Would you read it with me, please? In the turmoil of life, a clear conscience creates the basis for spiritual courage and comfort. So, what steps can we take to gain the greatest value from this story? Number one, accept the resurrected Christ as your Savior. Your good works will never be your Savior because they never nullify your sins. Only forgiveness does that. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and lives to give you forgiveness. First Peter three eight says it this way For Christ also suffered for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, you and me. Why? that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. When you accept Christ as Savior, this is accomplished by a prayer of faith that repents of sin and recognizes Jesus Christ as your Savior. You should take that step when your conscience has been inflamed by God And you recognize He's pursuing you with compassion. A life well lived is not self-oriented, but rather Savior-oriented. Second step. Sometimes the price of doing right is trouble. So reject the victim mentality and take heart that you are being Christ-like. To give you and me an opportunity to live forever, the perfect Christ died on a cruel cross so that through faith in His sacrifice, we could be brought to God. Because He did that for us, we can make it through times of injustice and trials because He is there to help us having experienced that same cruelty and injustice. Are you struggling with a victim mentality right now? There's been true injustice in your life. Third, do not ignore guilt. It's an indicator that you need to take care of something spiritual. This is done by replacing a wrong standard with a right one or through confessing doing something wrong. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful picture. Through confession, we give God our sin and He replaces that sin with forgiveness and cleansing and gives that to us. To ignore your conscience is to invite trouble. Number four, continue to develop your conscience by subjection to God's thoughts and ways as revealed through Scripture. God has providentially preserved His Word so we could know Him, know how to live life, and most importantly, so that we could be with Him forever in eternity. Personal Bible study, using resources like Right Now Media, attending growth groups, weekend worship services, they all give you the opportunity for God to develop your conscience. Children need this as well as adults. Number five, when life is dark with trouble, remember to keep living God's purposes because the Lord will never abandon His children. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are never alone. Meet the Lord in Scripture, meditation, and prayer. Psalm nine ten tells us, And those who know Your name put their trust in You. For You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek You. So five steps to take tonight. Should you take some of them? Accept Christ. The resurrected Christ as your Savior. Reject the victim mentality and take heart that you are being like Christ. Don't ignore guilt. Take care of it. Continue to develop your conscience by subjection to God's Word. And remember that He will never abandon you. In the turmoil of life, a clear conscience creates the basis for spiritual courage and comfort. Will you say it with me again? In the turmoil of life, a clear conscience creates the basis for spiritual courage and comfort. Do you have these in your life? Would you join with me in prayer, please? Our Heavenly Father, as we look at this story in the book of Acts about the Apostle Paul, I don't don't know how all of us feel about that, but I stand in admiration of the man. He was willing, through Being the person You want Him to be and living by Your standards, to have a clear conscience and to face all kinds of difficulty because He had that. Lord, I want to be like that. And I want to take care of business, God, when You, through Your Holy Spirit, nudge me that I've done something wrong. And God, thank You for confession and forgiveness. But Lord, You are only able to forgive us if we have first put our faith in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for anyone in this auditorium here tonight or watching us on live stream, that if they don't know Christ as their Savior, that right now, they would understand that Jesus Christ came and died for them. And they will look at their sin and the guilt that they're feeling because they have violated your laws and your standards, God. And they would ask Jesus Christ to come into their life by faith, turning from their sin and accepting him as their Savior. And God, thank you that when we do that, you give us forgiveness, you make us right with you. We stand in a position of justification. You look at us just as if we'd never sinned. But Lord, there are some people here that Your Holy Spirit has pricked their conscience and they need to take care of something. Perhaps a sin, a violation of Your Word. Or they recognize that they have violated their own conscience in the sense that They've gone against what they truly believe is true. Lord, may they confess it to You. Accept Your forgiveness. And then be determined to live a life with a clear conscience so that when the turmoils of life come and they will for all of us, we face them with courage and the comfort of knowing that You are there. Bless us, Lord, as we do that together as a church family. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go into this new week with a clear conscience.